often in uh, movies that have uh, sequels that are part of a larger story or a narrative, you'll be introduced to someone, a new character, uh, in the end credit scene, just to give you a glimpse of what the next chapter is in that story. That introduction of that character may only be for a moment, uh, but you know the next film is going to feature them. That's why they were the last person that you saw in the previous film. Maybe that person is going to become the hero in the next sequel. Maybe that person is going to become the villain. Now, how many of you are fans of the Marvel movies? Anybody watch those Marvel movies? I've never, I haven't watched any of those movies. Uh, I'm a grown-up, and so I don't watch cartoons. And so, but uh, all seriousness, uh, my understanding is that's a technique they employ. Kind of at the end, kind of right before the credits roll, to kind of introduce you to this person. You know that the next movie in that series is going to feature them. Well, we see something incredibly similar happen with a man named Saul in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit, we learned last week, began to indwell believers, and the gospel began to spread all over the land like wildfire. And a man named Stephen gave an incredible sermon in Acts chapter 7. Uh, Chapter 6 describes Stephen this way. It says, He was a man full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And so naturally, he's threatening their power. And so he's seized uh, by the religious leaders. And they want him, hey, you have to stop preaching. And so then standing before the high priest and anyone who would listen, he's asked to give an account of his crimes. And so with the spotlight completely on him, he gives the sermon that every pastor dreams of giving. Uh, Stephen's audience would have been uh, Jewish men who would have known the Old Testament inside and out. And Stephen did in about three to five minutes what took us 20 weeks to do uh, in this series. Kind of covers the whole Old Testament. He start off with Abraham's covenant in Genesis chapter 12. And then he takes his listener on a journey through the story of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. And just like we've done, hopefully, all throughout this series, uh, Stephen points every single story to the coming of Jesus Christ, the King, in the line of David. And he spoke boldly to the crowd and to the high priest who was listening. He said, hey, not only am I giving you a recorded history, I'm also telling you that you too need an encounter with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, as you can imagine, that didn't go over so well. And apparently it struck a nerve uh, with the Jewish leaders when he calls them out their need to repent because in Acts chapter 7 verse 54 it said they became so enraged with him that they gritted their teeth in anger. And then it says uh, the crowd didn't wait for the high priest to give a verdict. They just ensued mob justice on Stephen. Here's what verse 58 says. It says, then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses, listen to this part, And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Skip ahead to chapter 8, verse 1. It says this, and Saul approved of his execution. And so here early in the book of Acts, we have the first recorded martyr of the early church, a man named Stephen. And right there, overseeing it all, they lay Stephen's garments at the feet of a man who's known at that time as Saul of Tarsus. And so if this was a movie playing out, you can imagine the movie would end with a camera shot of all Stephen's clothes laid out at the feet of someone. Then the camera pans up and you see Saul of Tarsus standing there and then the credits roll. And here's what you know, that in the next sequel, that guy at the end, he's going to play a large 
part. Maybe he's looking at the villain. Maybe he's going to be the hero. But we're not totally sure at this point in Acts chapter 1 early, or Acts chapter 8. So turn with me if you have your Bibles, your phones, your tablets to Acts chapter 8. We're going to look there this morning. We're also going to be looking at Acts chapter 22 if you want to mark that place there as well. Now my guess is that for many of you, if you grew up in church, you know the story of the Apostle Paul. You know his radical conversion on Damascus Road that's recorded in Acts chapter 9. You may even know a little bit about his background and some of those things. And so for many of you, if you've been in church, you may have heard that story many, many times. But for others, maybe you're like me, you didn't grow up in church. And so you're wondering, you hear us talk about Saul of Tarsus, then we talk about Paul, unless that's the same guy later, his name changes into Paul the Apostle. We'll get into that uh, here in just a little bit, but what a great setup for a sequel. Here they stone Stephen and the feet are Lay, or his clothes are laying at the feet of Saul of Tarsus at that time. And then the script begins to flip. And all of a sudden, we're introduced to this uh, next character. And we have no idea at this point. Is he going to continue to be the villain or is he going to be the hero? And so the reality is we're not totally sure at this point in the story. But we're going to find out. All right? Let's pick up the text here in Acts chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So so clearly as we're moving into the sequel from from Acts chapter 7, clearly Paul's going to be the villain, right? This guy, Saul of Tarsus. I mean, he's there approving of the execution. They lay the clothes at his feet, and we just keep reading what we find out. He goes on a mission to destroy the church. And so in a sequel, it would clearly look like on the front end that this guy is the next villain in the sequel. But here's what's incredible. The guy who's supposed to be the villain and who is, at the end credits, ends up being the greatest hero of the faith In the early church. Because why? Because God can do more in a moment than you and I can do in a lifetime. God radically changes Saul's life. Two of the most well-known Christian preachers and authors, Chuck Swindoll and John Piper, have written books on just the life of the Apostle Paul. John MacArthur, several years ago, wrote a leadership book, and all of it were based on the leadership principles he observed in the Bible of Paul's life. Some have argued And said Paul's had the greatest impact of any Christian who's ever walked the face of the earth. And so much has been written about Paul and much more deserves to be written. But if I could take his whole life and just summarize it this morning, uh, here are three things his life would prove to us. The first one is simply this. God's not nearly as interested in where you've been. Now for many of us, that's a huge hang up. Our past, our background, our family dynamic growing up. What's in our past and and failures and shortcomings and all those things. If we're not careful, we'll allow failure to define our lives in the future. But what we encounter in the life of the Apostle Paul, at this point known as Saul, is this. Is that God is not nearly as interested in where you've been often as you are. And so Paul here, we're introduced to him. He's heading up the persecution of the church. And so clearly, at this point in the story, he's a villain. But in his defense, Saul wasn't just some angry guy looking to murder people and destroy people. In fact, he was a law-abiding, passionate man, zealous for the things of God. 
And what he could not reconcile is this early church that was now being born out through the Holy Spirit. Early followers were known as the way. What Paul saw them as a threat to the one true God. He said, hey, there's only one God and we're worshiping him and I'm zealous for him. And now you're telling me there's a, another guy, this guy named Jesus. He's claiming to be God as well. And so Saul, full of integrity, says, I cannot let that happen. I cannot let the worship of the one true God be compromised. And so uh, Saul is zealous for the truth, even when he's on the wrong side of it. This is what Saul says about himself later in the book of Philippians. Listen to this, Philippians chapter 3. He said, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if anybody can brag about their credentials, that's what he's saying. He says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As the righteousness under the law, blameless. And so we make him out to be the bad guy. And clearly he looks to be the villain for the church early on here in church history. But here's what he's saying is, hey, listen, I'm just zealous for God. And I just want to do everything I can to to protect and promote the worship of the one true God. And so he saw the early church and the message of Jesus claiming to be God in the flesh as one who can forgive sins. He saw that as a threat. You ever been so passionate about something, you're willing to fight someone for it? Many of you in this room, maybe that's your, your family. You think, hey, I don't care what you say about me, but don't mess with my kids. Am I right? Moms, if anyone messes with your kids, uh, you don't become someone different. You become something different. An angry, rabid mama bear. Am I right? Dads, if you hear a sound in the middle of the night coming from outside your bedroom, you grab whatever weapon you can and head into the darkness, or at the very least, you turn on the flashlight in your phone, right, and run around. Some of you are passionate about defending your team. You get in heated arguments over sports. Some of you are passionate about politics and political affiliation. You would defend that. You're you're on the right side of every vote and every election, those kind of things. But but you get the point. Here's the reality. We all have things we're willing to fight for and even destroy others in the process because we're so passionate about those things. Listen, Saul felt that way. He said, hey, I'm a Jew and I'm, I'm zealous about defending the faith. He said, I'm a Pharisee capable of measuring up to the law. He would have been named after the first king of Israel, namesake Saul. When he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, that likely means he could speak both Aramaic and Hebrew. Paul had incredible religious credentials. And here's what he's completely convinced of. He's saying in destroying the church, I'm not fighting against God, I'm fighting for God. He was that deeply convinced. He would have looked at it as some kind of new cult but had to be put down. He tells his story in Acts chapter 22. So if you mark that with me, let's flip over to Acts chapter 22 and pick it up in verse 3. Paul again is describing. He says, hey, this is who I was. If you want to know about my background, this is exactly. Let me, let me tell you exactly what I was like. Beginning in verse 3, he says this. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Who was Gamaliel? Gamaliel was considered the greatest teacher of the law in their time. It would be the equivalent of you sitting here listening to me teach every week. Amen? And so Paul said, hey, listen, I've sat at the feet of a genius. Nobody's more educated than me in the law. 
He says, according to the strict man of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are on this day, I persecuted this way, that's what they called the early church, the way, the followers of Jesus, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And so Saul is referenced to as uh, Saul of Tarsus uh, because of where he was born. And when he's giving this description, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I wasn't an ordinary Jew or Pharisee. He said, I studied among the, the greatest scholars. It would be like saying this. I studied physics at the feet of Einstein. Or I studied astronomy with Galileo himself. And so Paul wasn't just smart. Paul was brilliant. And not only was he brilliant, Paul was passionate for the things of God. And so then he goes into his crimes of uh, which seemed to him at that time to be reasonable, persecuting the church and all those things. He says, you can ask anyone, this is who I was. Let me help set the context. Because if we've heard Paul's story so many times, it's no longer mind-blowing. We just think, oh, yeah, Saul was this kind of guy and eventually got saved and he started doing some great things for the Lord. But, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Let me just help you set a context. If I told Saul's story and he were a modern-day person, you would chalk him up to being some sort of uh, Muslim extremist like the head of ISIS. That's who he was. That's his own description of what he would like. And you'd be right, except the part of the religion was wrong. And much like other extremists, Paul said, hey, the best thing I can do to promote my religion is to eliminate the enemy. And so can we agree something? Paul had an incredibly sinful, wicked past. And let me share with you the two most hope-filled words in all the Bible, but God. God looked at his life and said, hey, I'm well aware of who you are and who you've been and who you've studied under. And you may not believe this, but you're going to have an encounter with me that's going to radically change your life. And you're going to go from being the greatest persecutor of the church to the greatest promoter of Jesus Christ. And so no matter what your past is this morning, those same two words bring hope into your life. But God, and the good news of the gospel is this. Your spiritual future is not limited by your sinful past. Praise God. And that's what we see in Paul's life. He says, hey, if anybody was on the wrong side of God, it was me. And no one has to say that about me. I'm saying that about myself is what he's describing. But hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 49 that God would send someone to be a light to the nations. And that's a reference to the non-Jewish Gentiles. Here's what he said, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And that man was a man named Saul of Tarsus. Go back to Acts chapter 22, picking up in verse 6. He says, I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon. A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And he's recounting the story from Acts chapter 9. He says, and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Verse 9 says, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, 
I was led by the hand, but those who were with me and came into Damascus. Verse 12 says this, And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And so what incredible, incredible conversion story, which leads us to the second truth highlighted by Paul's life, which is this. God is more interested in where you're going. God's not nearly as concerned with where you've been as you are, but God is deeply concerned and very interested in where you're going. You see, as you read the book of Acts, that Saul eventually becomes known as Paul the Apostle. And so in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, remember the clothes of Stephen, the first martyr, laying at Saul's feet, and the camera scans up, and there is Saul of Tarsus who approved the execution, and then the credits roll. And so clearly, if this were a Marvel movie, Right? We know that the, the next sequel, this guy's the next great villain in the story, but God. And instead of being the next great villain, he becomes the next great hero. Why? Because God is more interested in where you're going than he is in where you have been. And every time that you feel chained up to a past that's got shortcomings and struggles and ways that people have sinned against you, and inadequacies, and all kinds of wrong and wicked choices. Some of you are chained up to a past, so much so that you cannot inherit the spiritual future that God has for your life because of His grace. And every time you find yourself trapped in those thoughts, let me encourage you this morning, go back and read the story of the Apostle Paul. If there's ever a man who says, hey, the grace of God can do anything he wants to do, it's Paul's life. And guess what? The same thing is true in your life as well. Your past has nothing to do with your spiritual future. God is not nearly as interested in where you've been as he is in where you're going. And so in these verses we just read, Paul begins to give an account of his Damascus Road experience. And in that account, we basically, Jesus shines a massive spotlight down on him and, and everyone with him saw it, but not everyone saw it the same way. For example, Paul saw a person, other people saw a light. Paul heard words while others heard just sounds. Now, this is not a contradiction here. It's the difference between the experience of believers and unbelievers. Paul's traveling with a group of people who don't know Jesus as the Messiah. He's traveling with fellow Pharisees who are just as zealous and the law as Paul was. And so they couldn't encounter and comprehend the things of God and the ways of Jesus. And so Paul has this incredible experience. And he comes to the realization, he says, wow, everything that I've been fighting for is wrong. And everything that I've been fighting against is right. And God radically changes his life. And not only does he radically change his life, listen, he radically reorients the affections of Paul's heart. Paul was always a passionate guy, right? The problem is his passion was misdirected. And so when Jesus comes into a person's life, he says, hey, good news. Your past no longer determines your future. There's grace for that. But here's some other good news. In the present, if you allow me, I will reorient the affections of your heart. And the things that you used to be zealous for, you'll no longer be zealous for those things. Matter of fact, you'll see them in a totally different light. We'll see that in a minute. And the things you should be zealous for, the things of the Lord, I can do that work in your heart. So let me just say this. All right, everybody look up here. If you know someone who's far from God and you can't imagine in a million years how God would ever reorient the affections of their heart, two words for you, but God. 
And God can, again, God can do more in a moment than you can do in a lifetime. God can reorient the affections of a person's heart. That's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't just save you so that one day you're going to hell and now you're going to heaven. Listen, that's the byproduct of salvation. Jesus saves you so that he can reorient the affections of your heart. For the things you used to love, you look at them and say, hey, there's nothing wrong with those things, but they're no longer the great passion of my life. Now I'm living for King Jesus. That's what happened in Paul's life. And it reminded him, hey, listen, I... Paul, I'm aware of your past, but I'm more interested in where you're going. Reading earlier in Philippians chapter 3, Paul was saying, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, uh, and a zealot. And this is what he says next in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. Listen to this. Whatever gain I had, whatever credentials, whatever accolades, Whatever accomplishments, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which is all he had before, but that which comes through Christ, through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, hey, remember all those things I told you about myself? Tribe of Benjamin, studied the feet of Gamaliel, Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, I know Hebrew, Greek, all those kinds of things. He said, basically, every experience I've encountered up to this point pales in comparison to knowing and serving Jesus Christ as my Savior. What an incredible testimony, right? Now, I've been doing this long enough to know that sometimes we look at the story and there's a danger in the retelling the story of Paul's conversion. The danger is this. You look at Paul's life and you're like, my story is kind of boring, right? Like we all love that sensational story. You know that person that gets up and shares that testimony. Say, hey, it all started off. I was in kindergarten. I started snorting pixie sticks. Right? And then one day I started freebasing jello and things just went downhill from there. Praise God for his mercy in those stories. Praise God that no one is outside the reach of God's grace, no matter how far off the tracks they've gotten. But you know what is just as an incredible of a story? It's the person who says, I came to, I was raised in a Christian home. I came to faith at an incredibly young age. And despite all the temptation all these years around me, yes, I struggled some, but for the most part, I've tried to stay faithful to the Lord. And because of his grace, I've never really gotten totally off the rails, even though I've sinned and struggled and all those kinds of things. Can I just tell you this? That's the most incredible testimony of all. When you think of the world, the flesh, and the devil waging war against us, the person who says, hey, I came to know Christ at a young age, and for all these years, by God's grace, God has empowered me to live a life faithful to him that is just as incredible as a story as Paul's conversion. Now, let me, why do I say that? Because here's why. Every time that a person gets saved, I don't care what their background is, what the story is, it is a story of a dead person Coming to life. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, different passions for different people. Some it's, you know, sounds like a wild story, some it's not, but different passions. But we, what do he say? We all once lived in that. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here it is again, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Hey, listen, tell me a boring story of a dead person coming back to life. You can't. You know why? Because that's incredible every time that it happens. Now, as you can imagine, I've been pastoring for 20 years, and so I've been in the funeral home a couple times in 20 years. And every time that I'm in a funeral home, you know what I'm reminded of? That person who's gone on, who's laying out there for the time of visitation and celebrating their life, I can encourage them all they want. I can shame them. I can instruct them. I can pray for them. I can give them a better moral example. I can educate them. I can motivate them. And none of those things has an impact on that person. They're still dead. You know why? The only thing that a dead person needs is to be raised to life once again. And every time a person gets saved, that's exactly what happens. And it's incredible. And I hope we never get over it. You have a past. And it may not be exciting. It may not be made into a movie, a Marvel movie. But here's the reality of every person in this room who's received Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. And so Paul said, remember all those things I bragged about in the past? Remember all those credentials I listed all for you? I look at all those and I count them as rubbish. One translation says foolishness. One translation says dung. If you look up dung in the Greek, it's pronounced this way. Doo-doo, all right? He says in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ and living for him and being brought to life in him, everything that I've accomplished, he said all of that belongs in the landfill compared to knowing and serving Jesus Christ. And so Paul's just bragging now. Christians should be braggers. The difference is we should be bragging about Jesus, right? I ran into a guy one time and was having a conversation with him, and he was describing someone else. He said, man, all that guy ever does is brag on Jesus. What a great testimony. All that guy ever does. That's what Paul's doing here. Acts chapter 22, Paul's in Damascus. Ananias says this of him. The God of our fathers. Now, remember Acts chapter 8, verse 1? Remember the clothes sitting at Paul's feet and camera pans up and there's Saul of Tarsus? Acts chapter 22 verse 14 says this, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. Let me say it one more time before moving on. Your sinful past has no bearing on your spiritual future. 
If you think that's good news, on the count of three, would you just yell, praise the Lord? One, two, three. But I want us to see one more thing this morning quickly. Third thing I want to see in Paul's life is this, is that Jesus gives your life purpose. I think it's safe to say that Rick Warren gets most of the credit for articulating and putting it into print. The idea that everyone's life has purpose in his best-selling book called The Purpose Driven Life. Now, different people have different reviews and feelings and critiques of that book, but I don't think anyone could deny that the idea of having a God-given purpose clearly resonated with millions of people. All you have to do is look at the book sales, and clearly uh, people begin to get enamored by this idea of, of life's not just working and, and you know, paying bills and going to sleep and getting up doing over and over again. And so that idea that had to resonate with that millions and millions of people. But the unfortunate, untended outcome of that book is this, is that some people thought the whole reason Jesus came into the earth was to make sure that we had life uh, that had purpose. Now, that's not the reason Jesus came. He came to save us from our sins and the wrath of God for all those who reject him. That's why. It's not the biblical, that is the biblical gospel. It's not popular. It doesn't sell tickets and fill seats up. That is the biblical gospel. Jesus came to save us from sin's penalty, which is hell, and save us from sin's power in the present, not just a life that lacks purpose. And so, but once we are saved, immediately, We are invited into the most incredible, purpose-filled life anyone could imagine. You say, what is that? Displaying God's glory among the nations. And so Jesus didn't save you to give you a purpose. He saved you to reconcile with God the Father. But once he did save you, he put you on an assignment. And the assignment has incredible purpose. It's to represent the glory of God to your neighbors and to all the nations. And so Jesus tells Paul to continue on his way to Damascus, but with a new purpose. He said, hey, you remember that passion you had for persecuting the church? You remember that? I want you to take that same passion. I want you to use it for a new purpose, and that's promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when Paul, listen, when Paul signed up, listen, his life never was the same again. Remember that verse in Isaiah chapter 49? We read earlier about God sending someone to the Gentiles to make the gospel known. Paul fulfills that verse. Acts chapter 13, verse 47 says this, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of this earth. God said hundreds of years ago that he would do this, and he looked at Saul of Tarsus, one of the early villains of the church and he said hey here's the good news your past doesn't define your future you're going to have an encounter with Jesus Christ himself and when you do you'll go from being the worst persecutor of the church to the greatest promoter of Jesus Christ because I'm desperately concerned with where you're going and your life lacked meaning and purpose and now you Saul of Tarsus the one with the clothes at his feet you will bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Jesus gives our life a purpose. Man who was so trained in scriptures like Paul was, Jesus would have the missing link to all the stories he knew from the Old Testament. All the prophecies concerning the Messiah now begin to make sense in Paul's thinking. 
All the covenant promises in the Old Testament would have immediately been highlighted in Paul's mind. All of the sacrificial systems, he would have finally put it all together and said, Oh, all of this pointed to Jesus. I, I, how could I be so naive? All along, what an incredible moment in his life. And so God saved him and put him on a path to literally change the world. And that's exactly what he did. We record, uh, Scripture says, Paul went on three incredible missionary journeys and launched some of those influential churches recorded in all of human history. He wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. God got a hold of a man and saved him in Jesus Christ and redirected all of his giftings, all of his talent, all of his passion, all of experience and put him on a mission and said, I can use your life to change the world. And guess what? The same thing is true of you as well. Now let me wrap this up with some good news and some bad news. Here's the bad news. You're not as special as you think you are. Is it just me or is that incredibly encouraging? Here's what I mean by that. The purpose for which God saved all of us is not that unique. It's to display His glory to our neighbors and to the nations. It's to fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples. You don't have to go searching for your purpose in life. If you know Jesus Christ, that's it. I'm just looking for some purpose in my life. Listen, when God saved you, he put you on mission. And your purpose is to make the name of Jesus Christ famous among the nations and make disciples and live on mission. That, that's not unique to anybody in the room. That's the call of God on everyone's life who knows Jesus Christ. But here is the good news. God has given you talents and experiences and passions that are unique to you. Do you know what that means? That means no one can fulfill the Great Commission mandate in the unique way that you can. God has wired each of us in specific ways. Some are organized and type A's. Others are driven by relationships. How many of you are like me think that God's greatest gift to humanity is a checklist? Can I just get a signify that by lifted hand? God bless you. I see those hands. God bless you. Right? I love it. You ever met a person who's like, oh, I got a ton of things to do and I just want to hang out and just, you know, have a good time with someone else and just build relationships, sit and talk. You know what I'm thinking during all that time? You're not going to heaven. Right? All the type A's are like, amen. Amen. God's wired people different. Some people are very creative. You know, some are just like a blank canvas. What do those people do? They lead worship. Amen. Am I right? <laughs> Others like to be told exactly, spelled out what to do. Don't give me a blank canvas, just give me a track and I'll run on it full speed ahead. Some are very emotional people. Some are just practical, like no emotions at all, right? And God's wired each of us uniquely, but here, here's, the, here's the deal. Left to our sinful self, guess what? We'll take all that wiring, all that gifting, all that experience, all those talents, and we'll use it for our own selfish promotion, our own selfish agenda. But when we meet Jesus Christ, just like he did with Paul's life, he's saying, hey, if you love me, I'll reorient the affections of your heart. And all those unique ways and experiences that you're wired, you can be used in a very unique way to fulfill the mandate of Christ on your life. Now, here's my opinion. That, that, that's all that it is, okay? But it is based on 20 years of pastoral experience. My opinion is that there are too many people in the church 
searching for purpose instead of figuring out how to use what they already love purposefully for Jesus. Your purpose is to represent Jesus in the world. And you know how you do that? If you're listening, say amen. Don't make it overly complicated. Find something that you love doing and sit down and write out a plan for how you can use that to point others to Jesus. You don't need a purpose. When God saved you, he gave you a purpose. What you need is a plan to redirect your passions to fulfill the purpose of God on your life. You don't need a purpose. What you need is a plan. And just take something you love. I had a guy say one time, he said, Pastor, he said, I love NASCAR. How can God use that? I said, write this down. He cannot. Amen? It's like a person saying, I root for the Browns. How can God? I said, just stop right there. Right? Pastor Chris, so when we preach sermons now, because we have you know, multiple campuses and each person is preaching the same sermon, we all sit down in the week and we all weigh in on the sermon and, you know, give ideas and edits and uh, those kind of things. So when we preach, it's a collaborative sermon at every campus. And Pastor Chris uh, has an uncle who was a pastor for many, many years, and then he was a missions director for many years, and he retired. And he just began to wonder, like, you know, God, I've, I've kind of given my life to full-time Christian service, and now I'm retired, and I don't know what to do now. And so he started making um, turkey calls. Is that what they're called? And I said, you're your uncle the guy, like the Duck Dynasty guy? <laughs> he said, no, no, no. And so his uncle started making these turkey calls, honestly, because he was bored. And then he started making them, and people started buying them. Like, hey, that's incredible. So he went to these expos or these hunting things or whatever. I don't hunt or anything like that. I'm an avid indoorsman. And so, uh, but, but he just said, hey, these are incredible. So long story short, he started getting popular with these expos. And then he went and he won some kind of award, which I guess if you're a turkey call maker, I don't know what, is that the right turkey call maker? It's like the highest award. Matter of fact, when they told him he won the award at that expo, he didn't even know what that was. And they said, you're kidding me, right? They said, here, write this down. You're the world champion turkey call maker. And they began to invite him to speak at all these outdoor things and wild game dinners and expos. And he said, uh, I will do that except on one condition. That every time you invite me to come and talk about my turkey calls and demonstrate them, I don't know what it is, whatever. He said, every time, here's the one requirement I have, you have to let me tell people what Jesus Christ has done in my life. And Chris said, it's not a stretch to think that he'll tell more people about Jesus as a turkey caller than he ever did as a pastor or missions director. You know what he did? He knew he had a purpose to declare the gospel to the nations. You know what he got? He got a plan. He got a plan. And some of you don't need to look for your purpose. You've been given one. So to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, what you need is a plan to take something you love and find a way to live on mission for Jesus Christ, just like the apostle Paul did. And you know what happens when you do that according to Paul's life? God will use ordinary you to change the world. Ordinary you to change the world.
And some of you think, well, I've just got that past, and I just, I don't know about that. That sounds, you know, you don't know me and my story. Let me just close with, close with a quote from John Maxwell who said this. He said, although you can't go back and have a brand new start with Jesus, you can start today and make a brand new ending. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to share two things with you. Number one, God is not nearly as concerned with where you've been as he is with where you're going. And because of the grace of God, your spiritual past has no limit on your future potential for Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe you're watching online and you say, I've never accepted Christ. I just thought I've been too bad. I've made too many mistakes. I've got too sinful of a past. Hear me this morning. Jesus Christ will save you and meet you right where you are today. And so would you just pray and confess your sins? God already knows them. And we just say, hey, I need Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins. I believe that he died on the cross. His payment for my sins was buried and rose the third day. And today, despite my past, I want a future with Jesus Christ. I'm receiving him as my Lord and Savior today. Doesn't matter what your past is. You can have a brand new future with Jesus Christ. Would you accept Jesus Christ right now for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you invite him into your life to be your Lord and Savior right now? No matter what your past You've got a future with Jesus. Would you receive him today for salvation? For those of you who are saved and walking with the Lord in the room online, I just want to pray for you. And here's what I want to pray if you'll let me. Some of you, when I described the purpose and plan, some of you, it immediately hits you. You don't have a plan for how to make Jesus famous among the nations. You know your purpose, it's to glorify God, to be an ambassador of Christ, to make disciples, to carry out the Great Commission. But you haven't quite figured out what that looks like in your life. And so right now, if I can just pray for you, if you just say, hey, Pastor, with everything inside of me, I want to sit down this week and I want to come up with a plan. I want to take something that I already love and find a way to point people to Jesus. I don't even know what that looks like now, but that is my heart. Would you pray the Lord would give me wisdom this week? If that describes you, I just want to pray for you. Would you raise your hand and say, hey, I need a plan. I want to come with a plan. Anybody raise your hand? Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Father, we're humbled that you would use us at all in your grand plan of redemption, that you would take the lower story of our lives and allow it to play a small part in the upper story of what you're doing. And so, God, for every person in the room who knows they're an ambassador for Christ, but they don't practically know what that looks like in their life, God, would you give them wisdom this week? Would you help them carve out the time to get alone with you and write out some things they already love and come up with some ideas about how they could use that to point people to Jesus and his eternal purpose? God, give them wisdom this week. God, don't let a person walk out of this room today chained up to a past that Christ has already died for and forgiven them. Let us go forth boldly this week in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that we can brag on today. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.